Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. So conspiracy theories, indeed biases and perception have been something we've long been talking about as intelligence analysts. And of course, this has increased markedly with social media in the last few years, but is a much longer lasting human uh, phenomenon. And with us today to talk about this is Dr. Nicole Lipkin. Nicole, welcome. And, and thank you for joining us. Uh, Nicole has a hugely impressive background, uh, which I'll paraphrase really as her big internationally recognized organizational psychologist, executive coach, fabulous speaker, and author of two very popular business books that I do heartily recommend. So What Keeps Leaders Up at Night and uh, Why in the Workplace, uh, which is managing uh, Jim Y. And, and of course, we've known each other a while uh, talking about some of these issues. So it's really great to have you on and, uh, and dig into um, some of the stuff from your own background uh, across psychology and obviously with your firm Equilibria Leadership Consulting. And uh, you know, so, th- so thanks for coming along. Um, thanks so much for having me, Justin. It is a pleasure. And of course, you know, uh, you're based in Philadelphia and much of the heart of things over the last couple of weeks. Uh, so it's been enjoyable talking about that. But you know, yep. what, what sets humans against each other so much and creates this us versus them phenomenon that we know fuels conspiracy theories where people are looking for good and evil in the world, aren't they? And try and make sense of the world through through stories or through opposition to something else. I mean, what, what fuels that in our nature? You know, it's, it's interesting. It's... Um as humans and i can't be totally direct i have to i have to i have to to tell the f- full story here but like as as humans what sets us apart is we we learn from three things we learn from experiences that we have we learn from observing others and we learn from instruction from others and the ability to learn from others is 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 really adaptive it's part of our evolution it gives us it gives us, we can learn from history. We can learn once when, if we see someone else eat, eat something and die, we learn not to eat that something. So, so that ability to learn and watch from others, that is very adaptive and has been part of our evolution. But those same characteristics, experience, observation, and instruction from others has also contributed to tribalism, which is the state of organizing into groups. And we form into groups naturally. When you, when you think about it, we form into groups based on very obvious features like, like black, white, gender, hair color. And then we form into groups based on not so obvious factors like liking a certain sports team or political values. And even what's so interesting about our biology as humans is even on an unconscious level, once we're in a group, our brains respond differently to people within the group and outside of the group and all of these neurochemicals. So when when we're in a group and we're with like-minded people in a group, we we build trust with one another based on some logical factors, like, you know, talking to the people, sharing values, whatever it might be, but then also based, based on really illogical factors, just like kind of free floating trust. But at the same time, as that's strengthening, we, our brain responds very differently to people outside of the group, the them, and our brains light up differently. So with this in mind, the way our human psychology work, the way tribalism works is that we consciously and unconsciously 
become less logical in our own groups, both with feelings towards the in-members, the in-group members, and those members outside of the group. So it's kind of a good thing when you're thinking about evolution because it allows for groups to be cohesive and connected, but it also battles, it also, it also allows these groups to battle against, you know, quote unquote, the others, the, the, the others that are different than us. And it even strengthens more because as humans, we're social beings. Even if you're not a social person, as humans, we are social beings and we like to be part of groups, to feel part of something. So, so the power of being within a group and to, to, to feel that we share like-minded values or you know, whatever it might be that's formed this group is extremely, extremely powerful. Um, and, and then you throw a dose of fear into that you have something really special that that you you can rest assured that politicians know about and that leaders have relied on. So tapping into when we start tapping into that tribal instinct, um, and a great way to tap into that is fear. That's a great way to mobilize that us versus them mentality. And <laughs> once that group forms and there's a clear other that you've labeled as bad or different or wrong, you can start playing and manipulating with people's mind. You can start throwing out ideas about the other group that are threatening or ideas that imply that the others, the them are gonna take something away from us, are gonna harm us or hurt us. And, and Justin, if you even think about something as simple as, you know, having a sports team you like, Think about the craziness that occurs from being, you know, rooting for one team versus another team. And I, I remember when I first moved to Philly, I'm from New York. And when I first moved to Philly, uh, you know, I grew up as a Mets fan and which is a baseball team. And I went to my first Phillies game that, and they were playing the Mets. I will never forget this. I was cheering for the Mets. I, I, had, I had no idea that it was going to be a problem. It was the first time in my life I ever thought I was going to get beaten up by a group of guys because I was cheering for a team. So talk about that us versus them and all the stories you read just from sports. Now you throw out, hey, they could harm our lifestyle or, or they're taking your freedom away or this or that or all of these things that we can use to create fear. Well, that becomes an even more heightened us versus them and that kind of competitive thing like they're bad, we're good without even knowing or without even doing your own research and knowing who's in the them group or that other group. So that, that's how it's formed. It, it, it's so part, so innate in our human nature. And it can be manipulated extremely easily to make it like just to set it on fire. It's like throwing gas into the fire. I guess as you say, people love the, the good versus evil narrative there was a great uh, sketch on on British TV and comedy show a number of years ago, which had uh, two SS officers who suddenly realised they've got skulls on their helmets. Perhaps they're not the good guys after all. And um, you know, I think that's always stuck with me when I look at this. And actually, a lot of the motivations you mentioned you see used by terrorist groups. I know even even Al Qaeda when they were recruiting in the nineties were promoting the idea of come and get trained in Afghanistan to defend Islam. You know, mm -hmm. we defend Islam from the attack it's under from the United States. I think it's always much easier to rally people to defense, which seems like a noble cause. Of course, attacking, you know, it always seems like you must be doing something wrong or maybe you're doing something wrong if you're attacking something rather than defending uh, defending something. I know even if you look at someone like Anders Breivik, 
in Norway. I mean, he argued he was defending a way of life or a, a set of values that he recognised that he thought was under threat. And mm-hmm. I know you want to see this about migration and, and other things as well, of course. So it, I think you've seen it played out on all sides. And you say our, our great strength as humans is our ability to gang together. And, and obviously it's our weakness uh, as well if exploited. Right. Um, so I mean, with that, what are the actual the biases that, that drive this? And particularly I'm thinking around conspiracy theories. And, and again, I've, I've seen it. I almost think conspiracy theories become a faith for people. It's, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't attack it logically, like you're saying, because it comes a worldview. You can't hit it logically. You can't argue with people about conspiracy theories because they're inherently illogical. And actually, if you try and disprove them, that must be because you're trying to protect the secret, right? So right. what are the biases that, that are driving people? You know, the, the, there's so many because like that us versus them is just one thing. But like you're saying, there's so many psychological biases that kind of, that get in our way of, 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 of thinking logically. And I think, you know, especially when you're talking about I think in order to talk about psychological biases, you, you also need to talk when it comes to conspiracy theories, you also need to talk about the power of fear and, you know, kind of what you were saying before, because, because fear in itself is a very illogical state of being. So, cause, to, cause talking about the psychological biases in context of fear, because it becomes the psychological bi- biases become even more difficult to fight when you're fearful. So, Fear in itself is a very illogical state of being. It, it, it triggers the fight flight system, right? And when you're in fear, when you're in a state of fear and, and that system is triggered, you're, the way the human body and the mind is designed, it's designed to shut down logic because your body is responding. Your, your nervous system is responding. Your, your hormones are responding to keep you alive. You're in a heightened state. So our biology makes it really, it's super hard to react logically. So because fear circumvents logic, it's, it's a great tool to use and to start tapping it, to scare people and to start tapping in to the things that make our lie, our minds lie to us. It takes away our critical thinking skills. It takes away our questioning skills. It takes away our curiosity. And curiosity is one of our greatest tools to counteract our psychological biases. So, you know, when, when you think about some of the psychological biases in play, there's a ton. I'm just, I'm going to highlight some of the ones that we probably all can relate to. One is fundamental attribution bias. This is this is one of my favorites, and I catch myself in this a lot. Um, and I caught myself in this with politics. But what this attribution bias says is that when we screw up or when we mess up, we're very quick to blame external factors for our mess ups. But when the other group messes up or the other person messes up, it's clearly their personality or their character flaws. When you apply that to that us versus them, that becomes very powerful. So let's say you have liberal versus conservative. So so if you have a conservative point of view, if you're the other group with a conservative point of view, clearly there's something wrong with your values and your personality and your character. But as a liberal, if if I act... Um, inappropriately. Well, it's because you pushed me or you made me or this or that. And I'm just applying that to politics, but mm-hmm. that's naturally how the brain goes because we're, we're self-protective, right? We're, we're a little bit selfish. We're self-protective and, and nothing we can do is wrong. And it, that we fall into that a lot, especially when we're heightened because of fear. Another big one that we all know about is confirmation bias. This is a huge one. We look for things that are going to support our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And I, 
the funniest study that I, I think the most profound study that was ever, there's been tons of studies done on this, but the one that I always like to talk about is, um, Justin, you're familiar with Stephen Colbert, right? The comedian. I think you can see most, most listeners will be at this point. Okay. So before he, before he was as famous as he is now, you know, he is a, he, he would act as a, as a, as a conservative pundit. Right. And now we know that it was, you know, he was making fun of it, but before he gained in popularity, they did a research study and they had, they had diehard conservatives and diehard liberals watch him. And the diehard conservatives assumed that he was a diehard conservative and the diehard liberals assumed that he was a comedian making fun of diehard conservatives. And if it was the opposite, if it was the opposite way that he, you know, vice versa, I, I, it, it would have been the same thing. But the, that's confirmation bias. The conservatives wanted to see, wanted to believe what they wanted to believe. And they, they made their reality what they wanted to believe. And again, if it was vice versa, it would have, it would have been uh, the liberals uh, engaging in confirmation bias. But regardless, it shows us that we're so we will invest so much energy to see and feel the things that we believe and want to feel. And at the expense of missing real information. And I think that's one of the important things to talk about the, with the human brain is we, we fill in the blanks. Our brains use, use mental models. So we, we, we group things together. And thankfully we do, because if we didn't group things together, you know, and we had to analyze every single little bit of information, we, we, our brains would explode. So our, our brains are, 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 are designed to, you know, uh, to, to use as little energy as possible. But because of that, we fill in the blanks and sometimes we jump over facts and we miss a lot of information. Through that, we're, we make up stories because our brains seek order. But life is in order. It's, it's chaos. So even if you look at religion and, and, and the books we rely on, they provide order. They provide an explanation to the things that are unexplainable. And our, our brains like stories. Our brains lie to us. They make up stories. So we, we, we like to see that. So we as humans are ripe targets for conspiracy theories. We are ripe because... <laughs> we want to believe the things we want to believe and we want to make sense of the chaos. And that's why we're such great targets for conspiracy theories. And, and, and couple that with fear, you have, you have a, a recipe for people latching on to things that are not, that are not real. And when we are fearful, we are less likely to act logically to use our, our um, critical thinking skills to analyze the information that's coming to us. So right. I, I, I talk a lot. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. <laughs> but I, I'm listening a lot because I think it, it's, no, I think it's fabulously interesting talking with you about these things because I go back to conversations we had years ago about the importance of stories, as you've just mentioned, the desire of people to put in order and actually wanting to speak to you on the podcast came about partly because I chaired a session um, during OSAC this week that was looking at conspiracy theories that we jokingly called the truth at last. And several people did join to find out if they would find out the truth. Uh, someone did reference the X-Files. So the marketing worked, if nothing else. But it was um, but it was an interesting session. The question did come up at that when I was talking about the concept of maybe that, you know, this becomes a faith. And someone did ask yeah. and say, well, actually, does, you know, do more religious populations have a greater tendency to, to believe in conspiracy theories? I don't know if there's been any research on that. 
um, I had a mild view that actually, in a way, I think if you've got religion, maybe you don't need conspiracy theories. So perhaps if there's less religion, <laughs> there's more conspiracy theories because people want to find belief somewhere. Hmm. I don't know. I, I'm sure there has been research and I am I, sure there has been. I, I, I do not know. But I know we're all prone. And I'm not saying religion's a story. And, and that, that's not what I'm implying. But we're all prone yeah. wanting, again, want, wanting to have a story to help us make sense of things. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I do not know. But I, but again, I do know when people are fearful, yeah. they are more likely to grasp on. Yeah. Sense, they're more likely to grasp on. When people are not looking to make sense out of things, they're less likely to grasp on. And it is notable, actually. I think there's um, a high degree of focus on conspiracy theories uh, in parts of the Middle East. And I think there definitely was a, um, a study that showed a relationship between feelings of powerlessness as well as fear um, and the desire of people to believe in conspiracies. And of course, sometimes it's because they are victims of a powerful elite that is pulling the strings already. So it doesn't become a huge step to believe that maybe other things uh, are being are being done that way. But that, I did see that one. And you know, that was, you know that was interesting though, Justin? And I, I saw this on a, I cannot remember this woman's name, but I thought it was so, it, it was explained so well. And, you know, kind of like, again, conspiracy theories, fake news, let's just, I, I wanna group them together for a second. But what, and again, I'm sorry, I can't remember this woman's name, but what she was saying, which was so interesting, was that when you, and, and it ties into that us versus them and our human psychology, when other people in your group start believing something, it becomes more powerful. It, 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 it becomes fact because I trust the people in my group. I trust, I have, and, and, and I, and not my, my, biology is also heightening that trust oxytocin release like if you know people that you love and people that you care about and people that you trust you're releasing oxytocin like there is that there's that neurochemical thing that's happening in your body to, to enhance trust so if the people around me that i trust are starting to believe in something we are you know we as humans tend to be more followers than leaders and and and, and following the pack we we want to be part of something versus versus the black sheep that believes differently. So it's easier to be part of it. That's, that's status quo. It's easier to be part of it than it is to pull yourself back and become someone who believes something different. And that's not what this woman was saying. <laughs> that was my babbling. <laughs> but what this woman was saying that was super interesting was that a lot, at least in the States, that a lot of like and I don't know if this is true, so I don't know if I'm starting a conspiracy theory, but that, that a lot of like failing news stations were being purchased and, you know, and, and failing news stations that were, were, you know, giving regular news, but then little bits of, and pieces of, 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 of false news would come in or, or, or alternative facts would, you know, as, as Kelly Conway calls it, would, would, would come into the news. But if you are, if you were someone that, you know, religiously watches the news station or religiously reads a newspaper and you trust that station and you trust the reporters or you trust the writers in the newspaper and information starts seeping into that, you're going to be more likely to believe it. The same thing. I was putting myself in, 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 in the same shoes. Like I, I read national NPR and I, I look at the website every day. I listen to the radio station. I very much trust the news I'm getting. 
if little pieces of information are seeping through there that might not be reality or, or true, I'm more likely to believe that because I've already developed a trusting relationship with this new source. Right. So I thought that was really interesting of also how information can seep in and how conspiracy theories can seep in and alternative facts and, 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 and <laughs> which is yeah, my favorite yeah, statement of all time. Well, and of course, yeah, I mean, lying to people for <laughs> to, to gain advantage is not you. We had a conversation with Lisa Kaplan before about uh, exactly this topic around misinformation and uh, disinformation. And of course, actually the fact that mainstream channels are having to compete now almost for clicks and views anyway, because it's leading down that path of potentially less editorial oversight because there's more pressure to get something out quickly. They are themselves having to try and uh, identify fact from fiction uh, amongst a hugely expanded mass of information. So, I mean, this is a problem that's obviously very familiar to intelligence analysts. I think we pat ourselves on the back um, and collectively tell ourselves that we're really good at not having any biases and completely ignore the fact that we're probably group thinking our way into, into believing that. Um, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think actually it's a challenge, I think, for analysts in some ways around this is the fact that we are probably trained to see the other side, uh, you know, if we're trained well, we are trained to think beyond just what we're being shown. Now, funnily enough, we put a huge amount of effort into telling stories because we are trying to piece together a narrative from isolated clues. So, uh, of course, we're going to be as exposed to those biases as anyone else, I guess, as part of that. But I think it does make it hard for us to understand just how strongly someone might hold a view. In fact, I find it amazing that people in this day and age, you know, believe that the world is flat. And not only a substantial chunk of people, but a growing chunk of people believe the world is completely flat. I, I mean, I don't even know where I'd start to, to try and talk to him about it, but I, I'm pretty sure I couldn't dissuade someone who had that view from still holding it, whatever I said. Is that fair or am I missing a trick? It's fair. So Justin, what's so interesting about it, imagine for a second, putting yourself in the shoes of someone who believed the world was flat which we know is not true, but imagine, you're, imagine you believe that. If you believe the world is flat, there's many other values and thought processes. Like there's things that are such a big concept. There's so many other things. There's this like kind of web that is built around that concept. If you believe the world is flat, imagine me, it, it would be like you standing on a table and me literally kicking the table from under you. you. You'd fall flat, you would get hurt. Apply that to like our, our, our logic and our thinking and our emotions. There's, there's this web that, that, and I hope I'm explaining this well, is so integrated into our core beliefs, how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we see others. And if I'm gonna start challenging you that, that you are wrong, well, you're, you're going to fight with your might against, against that because if you are to be wrong, then all of that stuff that is based on those core beliefs get, it, it, it is tangled up in that core belief. That makes sense for, for, you to, for you to change and to let that go takes so much energy and effort and loss and grief and all of the things that our brains do not like it takes a lot. And you know, Justin, what's also so interesting is you were talking about analysts and, and how you all trained. Basically what you were just saying to me is you are trained to apply your critical thinking skills and to develop your critical thinking skills. We are not born with those. 
those need to be developed and honed and practiced throughout a lifetime. Most of us do not do not do that. Analysts, it's part of your career, so you're constantly it's it's a um, it, you know, it's a professional liability almost to think that everyone else is doing that and training and developing, just like with me being a psychologist, like it's, it's a professional liability for me to think that everyone is, is working on their self-awareness and paying attention to everything, you know, that kind of stuff. No, that's not, that's not, if you don't have to do that, you're not doing that. So it takes effort, mindfulness, and, and focus to work on critical thinking skills. And I personally believe we should be doing that from a day a child was born, that that should be one of the core things we are, we are teaching children and it should be integrated into curriculum from, from, from the day a child starts school. We should have parenting skills taught on how to build, like that is like critical thinking skills are one of the most important social emotional skills that um, we should be focusing on. It's interesting you say it almost meshes leadership i know you've got your other uh, activity streaming hey kiddo uh looking at exactly these sorts of developmental issues i think for kids and parents if, I, if i've got that right mm-hmm. um and i think that's um you know what i like about that is i feel i benefited because i i did receive leadership training from a younger age although i didn't know it at the time mm-hmm. didn't appreciate it at the time but it was there and things i've taken for granted in later life i was fortunate enough to have to have learned early uh, in the way you suggest um just because just happened to be the school i went to was very good at that sort of thing so you know, I've always felt strongly about it. And, and you mentioned earlier about actually one's ability to stand aside from um, a group in a way and be able to think critically about it. And I think that does relate to leadership as well. So, you know, I'd be really yeah. keen personally to see those sorts of things grow. But is it becoming easier or harder in the age we're in with, of course, this explosion of information? You know, my, my feelings, well, it must be a tremendous stress now, maybe a tremendous stress on parents as well about access to information their children now have from early age and whether or not they can they can deal with that. I mean, is that is that a biased view of myself as a previous generation? Um, you know, am I underestimating the, the generations coming up? Um, or is this going to be a growing problem and a growing, therefore, security issue because it's going to drive all the negative behaviours that we know, conspiracy theories, misinformation, you know, absolutely do drive. I can go back to Timothy McVeigh as well as the examples mm-hmm. we discussed earlier, like Breivik and others. Well, I, I think that's a great question and I'm about to dive down a rabbit hole, but I want to, I want to, I actually think it's going to be a growing concern because obviously look, there's more access, there's more technological savvy, all of that would rely. If we don't help build these critical thinking skills, I, I think we're in, I think we're in for some deep trouble. And, and the reason why is because what, what we are seeing and one of the causes of this is technology and access to information. What we are seeing is significant increases in mental health problems, in life functioning problems, all of this stuff among kids. Like suicide is a third leading cause of death in kids in the United States. Like that is mind boggling. So we have a generation of kids coming up whose coping skills are not fantastic. And we've had generations of children growing up into adults whose coping skills are not fantastic. So when you have coping skills that are challenged, this society and this world where like this information is coming at you and you really do have to think hard and do your research to figure out what's true and what's not, 
but we're used to just getting information like at our fingertips easily and we don't want to do the work. Well, that to me seems like a convergence of a problem yeah. because it does take work. We, you know, Justin, when you and I were growing up, there was, there was less information. You, you, you had to go to libraries still, right? It, just, it yeah. wasn't, we, we did, we did, that was part of our childhood. I mean, do we need um, to explain harder. at this point? So for those who aren't aware, libraries are kind of a physical version of the web and Wikipedia where you could walk around. Um, yeah. So just, just putting that in there for our younger listeners. Anyway, Karen. Right. But we couldn't, like, we had to do, we had to do some research to get information. And then, and then, and then the internet came and, and, and then it was a touch of a button and all of that and had to discern what was reality and not, but, but, but I do see a growing problem because it's not in a vacuum. You have to look at people's mental states. You have to look at people's, you have to look at people's emotional states. You have to look at people's um, level of interest in doing the work. When you have gotten things so easily at the touch of a button, it, it's harder. It's harder to have the grit and persistence to do the work mm. of fleshing out reality and also fleshing out your own feelings and beliefs and biases from from reality. So, so I do think, I, I do think we have our work cut out for us. Yeah, it's funny because I'd actually just scribbled down on my own thoughts I, I was keeping as we were talking and I'd just written do the work in capital letters just before you said it. So um, although what then occurred to me is just how deeply irritating so many of us find that phrase instinctively because it just sort of smacks of um, no longer getting away with being lazy. And uh, I, I suppose, especially in this case, intellectually lazy when information is so convenient. Um, yeah. And I think you've just yeah. explained the dichotomy for me, which I've known about for a little while. Um which is the fact that there's more and more awareness of the need to remain safe online, especially amongst younger generations. Uh, yep. More and more people in younger generations will respond to surveys saying they're highly aware of the fact that the information they see on the internet might not be true. And yet there's more and more engagement with untrue information by those same people. Uh, and indeed, you know, standards of online safety haven't particularly improved at all. Awareness of all these things has increased and yet behaviours, if anything, have got worse. And I suppose it is that it is a sort of an intellectual laziness in line with sort of being aware of the need to go to the gym, you know, fully yeah. aware of the benefits of going to the gym, but not really wanting to go to the gym. Yeah. It, Justin, like, you know, it's, it's so interesting. And I fall into this trap. We all fall into this trap. Think about your handwriting since, since computers or since our work kind of uh, started, you know, since typewriters and then, and then I don't remember the thing in between typewriters and computers. What was that called? word processors and then computers like I don't know about you my handwriting is terrible now I used to have beautiful handwriting it's terrible now because I don't practice my handwriting any skill we don't practice diminishes why should we think why should we think our critical thinking skills our, our analysis skills aren't going to diminish if we don't practice them and, that, and that's what's happening. We don't, we don't practice as much. We don't challenge ourselves as much. And is it because there's so much information? Is there so much overload? Is there so much happening that we don't have time in a day to do it? I don't know what the reason is, but we definitely are not valuing it and prioritizing it as society. No, and particularly, I think, as intelligence analysts, I think that serves as a, as a great place to, to wrap up and actually be a reminder to, to us that um, you do need to do the work and although it can be tempting I think with the level of information we have at our disposal we are 
as guilty potentially as the phenomenon we are analyzing if we if we don't do the hard yards if we don't keep our brain muscles in trim uh, and if we don't think about these these things especially as we're more and more exposed to these biases these these shortcuts and the need for shortcuts i guess amongst a confusing and increasingly fearful um, global environment uh, i'm afraid to say but nicole thank you so much for joining us for those of you, you who haven't had the chance to to uh Engage in the call in person, uh, hardly recommend it in terms of um, the work you've done with uh, ISMA and Tiny G in particular, but I know obviously a long-term friend of the security industry. And again, go check out Equilibria Leadership Consulting and have a look at Nicole's books. I can assure you they are immensely useful. We've all personally benefited from them in Sibyline and we use some of the leadership approaches that she discusses and uh, they've worked for us. Um, I think the team would agree. So, uh, you know, thank you for all that as well. And uh, do check them out. Cheers, Nicole. Thank you.